Women making waves. Susie, is living by the sea something that you fancy? Because it's certainly something that's always appealed to me. Mm, so it's appealed to you. Well, I think it would appeal to me, except I like to have all my sort of things in one basket, basically. I'd like to be by the sea. I'd like to be able to walk to the shops. I'd like to walk to the station. And I'd like to be able to walk to restaurants. Now, is there such a place in the UK? Well, you'd like all your shells in one basket. Ah, think, yeah, really. that's what no, I was looking I, for. I think, I think, yes, that might be feasible in some places. Mm. Because you get these seaside towns. You do. And if you were living down the front of of a seaside town, mm. you might have shops nearby. The station might be nearby. Who knows? I think it could be done, Susie, if you pick your right spot. Hmm. Well, talking about picking the right spot, you've got to be really careful these days, haven't you? Because if you're right by the sea on cliffs, you might not have a house there. In oh, say, town twenty. Climate change. Yeah. Situation. Yes. And, and the cliff erosion. Of, cliff mm. erosion. Yeah. It's big, isn't course. it? Oh, it's terrible. Mm. And you see some terrible instances where whole streets have disappeared. Yeah. And you know, people have had their homes there. It must be one awful. By one, oh. Must be I, awful. Imagine trying to get insurance apart from anything else. I you know. just couldn't. Yeah. You just couldn't. Yeah. Just an awful situation. And losing your home, having to move out oh. of it, not selling it, but just having to walk away. Oh, it's tragic. Absolutely Absol- tragic. It is tragic. Yeah. It yeah. is absolutely tragic. No, I was thinking maybe back a bit. Back a bit from the from the from the cliff tops. Really, oh, okay. You know. All right. May, maybe maybe near the beach. Maybe down there near the beach. With maybe a, a safety the safety of a road in between. Yes. <laughs> Yes, the front. I'm thinking of maybe down the front somewhere, mm. or mm. or way way back, but you can still see the sea in the distance, but the glinting in the sun. I mean, I, I just loved that. I, I used to live by the sea when I lived in Sicily as an au pair for a while, and my room overlooked the sea. Oh Susan. wow! And I bet you didn't realise how lucky you were. Oh, to no, have did, such I a did. view. Oh, you I did? Yeah, oh, I did. Extraordinary. I liked being this, by the sea. And I used to listen in bed to the fishing boats going out in the mm, evening. Nice. And coming in again very early in the morning, you'd hear the little motors chugging away. And I loved it. I really, really did. I used to lie there and think, oh, I wonder what's going on in those boats. You know, these poor, <laughs> poor people in the boats having to go out to work at this time of night. Did you ever think that you'd want to pilot a boat? Did you ever think, oh, I'd quite like to drive that boat or to pilot that boat? I preferred lying in bed listening <laughs> to them. <laughs> I've always wanted to, I don't know, I, I, I had this sort of harping for learning how to drive a boat but it is very expensive to learn how to drive a boat it's not the same as driving a car is it well I mean it's a bit like wanting to fly have you ever thought about learning to fly Linda well, not really, no, no. But, you know, learning to skipper a boat, I don't think it would be terribly difficult. No. There's lots of rivers in these parts, you know, mm, and you get true. these little gin palaces that oh. people have. Oh, you know? now so that's my kind of thing. thing. how yes. you start off. Yes. And, and I, I'm not saying it's easy. I think you need a bit of practice, especially going through the locks. Oh, I you thought know. you were talking about the gin. Oh, no, no, no. You've had plenty of practice at that. You've had no problems <laughs> there at all. I was meaning manoeuvring through locks and yes. things like that. Oh, and, and, yes. You know, and berthing the thing as well. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, In fact, yeah. that is quite a spectacle, isn't it? When you see the boats, what do you call them? Sorry, the um, barges. Oh, yes. like houseboats. Yeah, so when you see the houseboats house going through, that's quite an amazing spectacle, isn't it? Seeing yeah. one side of the, of the water having to decrease mm-hmm. while the other side is... Increasing. Yes, we, we have a lock in the village, mm. and you know, many a happy hour. 
yes. I've spent watching people yeah. struggling to get through those <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but anyway, our guest today, one, of course, has a great affiliation to the sea. That's Chloe Matharu. And she is a musician, but she's a singer-songwriter who is inspired by her time in the Merchant Navy. So she's got some great stories to tell. Mm. And then we have a lady called Livy Partington. And she is dedicating to finding solutions, climate solutions. And she works for an organisation called Climate Clarity. So that will be also on the show today as well. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Chloe Matharu is a singer-songwriter and harpist from the west coast of Scotland. We originally met Chloe at the Cambridge Folk Festival when she talked about her time as a navigational officer in the Merchant Navy and how she's inspired by these experiences when composing music. After that original meeting, we thought we needed to learn more about Chloe. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Chloe. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Now, just to be clear, when we say harpist, you're talking about a full-size harp, not a baby harp. Let's start by finding out more about your harp playing. It's, it's a bit unusual. What made you choose the harp over other instruments? Well, to be honest, you say it's a full-size harp, but it's still actually the Clarissa, so it is the Celtic harp. Yeah, I, I know that pedal harps are slightly larger, and that's what you would see in an orchestra. Um, but in Scotland, actually, it's really common to come across the Clarissa. It's in a lot of music. I mean, having said that, the first time I saw a harp in person was when I was 10 and I went to Edinburgh Castle for a Christmas market and there was a singer-songwriter and harpist playing and she looked really glamorous in this big dress and I just fell in love with it and I instantly said to my parents, like, I need to learn the, the harp and so uh, we found a local teacher and I started my lessons uh, from that point onwards. That's pretty young to know what you want to do. And that's quite a high demand from your parents, actually, that you want to be a harpist and you would like a harp as well. Yeah. So at first, I think they didn't they didn't expect me to keep it up. So they rented a harp, which I think is kind of standard. And luckily, we have all these Clarsex Society branches that you can rent from. So it is actually really easy to start the harp in Scotland because there's places you can rent from. And then, to be honest, I was really rubbish at the lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and I, honestly, it was just the love of the harp that kept me going. But I didn't really enjoy the lessons and I, I didn't like reading music from sheets. And it just felt very formal. And, you know, I had to play a piece of music from start to end without any errors before the teacher would let me move on. But I was really nervous in front of her, so I never used to make it to an end of a piece. <laughs> so I would play the same piece for months. And my mum would be like, why are you still playing this? Like, you're playing it so well in the house. And I'd be like, because I can't play it in public <laughs> in front of the teacher. <laughs> Essentially, that's what would happen. So I, I stuck at it just because I was so in love with the instrument. And it wasn't until I think I was about 13 or 14 that uh, I switched to a different teacher who was more trad based so it was more traditional music and she taught more by ear and she really developed my ear and musicianship and her name was uh, Helen McLeod and sadly she's no longer with us but she was uh, just the most amazing teacher and she was really full of energy and just 
you know, it's everything that you want from a music teacher. And I think that was what made me really come on to then wanting to perform. Someday soon I'll fly away to where it's spring. your first instrument that you played Chloe? So I did play violin when I was a kid but I've always been singing so singing really came naturally to me and I went on about wanting to become a singer but I don't think anyone really believed that that would happen (laughs) so lots of kids love music and I think that my granddad used to take me to musical theatre shows and that was what I always planned to go into was kind of the musical theatre but no one in my family really plays music apart from my Indian side, who I I didn't see that often growing up. Um, So it was more like anyone in Scotland, like my close family, we didn't really have music in the house being played. I just would like to know, I'm always fascinated by harpists and I love watching and listening, but actually playing the harp, could you just give us a sort of a a sort of a layman's explanation and what it's like playing a harp and how the position that you have to be in and and the way you have to sit. So it was quite interesting because I think years ago when Isabel Muris actually described it to me that years ago in I think the 70s and 80s people used to sit daintily to the side and then have the harp on their shoulder so that their spine would be completely twisted but it looked very ladylike sitting at the harp and to be fair actually sometimes I find myself sitting like that when I'm wearing (laughs) certain types of dresses but I didn't realize that used to be a thing but really technically speaking you should be sitting very straight onto the harp you know the harp is sitting between your knees and a wee bit of the weight is on your shoulders but you're kind of supporting it with your knees and then you have a very neutral position with your elbows out and your fingers down and (laughs) that's the correct way to play it and it's very much like a piano so you've got the melody in your right hand and then you've got the chords in your left so whether you're right-handed or left-handed it's always the same Uh, so I'm actually left-handed you know you just learn to play it the same as everyone else. So you love the harp but you didn't go into that did you? You joined the Merchant Navy. How did that come about, Chloe? Yeah, so I left school um, and I really wanted to do music, but everyone kept saying, get a career behind you, you know, get a degree. And I was just thinking, well, okay, I guess I could go and do that. But then it's more studying and school just felt really grueling. And I did really well, but I put a lot of pressure on myself in school. And just the idea of more pressure trying to meet grades seemed really not for me. So I did end up going to do molecular biology at St Andrews for a year or two and I've still got the credits from that but it ended up being just not the scene for me like there there wasn't enough work ethic and there were lots of people messing around (laughs) at St Andrews wow I'm surprised (laughs) so I felt like maybe it would be better to just go into something like an apprenticeship and I have always been fascinated by you know folk songs about going to sea and this kind of storytelling about seafarers 
And so I really wanted to experience it. And my mother is originally from Milford Haven in Pembrokeshire. So I was also thinking about work that would lead me to Wales. You know, living rurally in Wales, there's not that many jobs, but the maritime industry is very strong down there. So I looked into oil tanker cadetships and I applied to the Merchant Navy and was accepted. So I told my parents that once I'd been accepted and gone for the interview, and that was me off to sea. And it was great because from day one, you had everything paid for and you also had an allowance. So you didn't have to worry about anything apart from your studies. And I thought that was really good. You chose to do the Merchant Navy rather than the Royal Navy. Was that something you thought about? Yeah, um, I did consider the military, but um, it just seemed the same kind of individuals that were going into the university. They were thinking more about their ego rather than what they wanted to <laughs> to work as. And that might sound bad, and it probably is. Obviously, I respect what the military does, but I just think that there's a lot of young men that have something to prove that go into the military and actually, my husband, I'd met him at St. Andrews and he went into the Royal Navy just a bit before I went into the Merchant Navy. And so I'd already made up my mind that it was definitely not something for me. But then when I saw what the types of people he was with <laughs> and the training and also um, where it was in Dartmouth, it didn't really appeal to me. So I, I applied for oil tankers. And also, um, I should mention that I've always been obsessed with oil tankers. Like I've got this strange obsession about oil tankers from a very early age. <clears throat> I just really liked the way they looked and I was kind of interested with how they worked and things. Uh, so it was just something that I really wanted to explore. When you got the offer to become a part of the Merchant Navy, what were your peers saying to you? Were they of equal um, aspirations like you or were they doing obviously you know, maybe something different? But I'd just love to know the reaction. I think they were confused and I don't think that anyone knew what it was uh, and I think that a lot of people assume that it's military because they just don't know much about ships and seafarers and I think that's the point of my music is that it's such a marginalised part of society like in actual fact we do so much behind the scenes like we bring fuel into the country most of people's clothes and you know everything that we use uh, if it's been imported it's likely to have been actual sh actual ships that have brought it in so it's a huge part of our everyday life. And yet we don't really know about the Merchant Navy when you speak to people. So when I would tell people, they would think it would be the military and you'd explain to them what you're doing and they would just look at you kind of dazed and be like, whatever makes you happy kind of thing. And, so, <laughs> and then I think a few people were worried because obviously I was disappearing to sea on ships out of sight and mind. And so as a female, I think they were worried about me which is very real, like it's a very real worry. And for me, I it also crossed my mind as well was the safety because you are going out of signal for months on end on ships. And I think that I should really address that now and honestly and say that is a real risk. And that is something that I would not be happy for my daughter to do in actual fact. Um, but I registered with a British oil tanker company and I decided to sail around on coastal oil tankers so close hugging to the coast and it was mostly around northern Europe so things like phone signal were less of a challenge because I'd be in and out of port more regularly yeah. and I think that in the past like I actually haven't spoken about this in interviews and things because I, I like to be upbeat but it's actually dawned on me that I should really be very open in the fact that there have been incidents with certain shipping companies and cadets female cadets disappearing and, you know, we are um, a, a minority at sea and there still is a lot of work to do to 
to make us feel welcome at sea and even to have unions have our backs because I think there's a lot of unions out there that tick the boxes and say that they have our backs but even when I've had issues where I've gone to the union saying look this is because of my gender that this has happened it gets brushed under the carpet and no one's no one's that interested to hear so it's definitely something a young person should do a lot of research and speak to other seafarers especially female seafarers before they consider going to sea. Yeah Mm. but there's been a lot of well-documented stories um, I know about women, I think mainly in the Royal Navy, because I, I guess that that's where a lot of them end up. But um, there have been a lot of stories about women and the problems that they've had of being a woman, suffering quite badly from sexual harassment and being passed over for promotion as well. Yeah, uh, I think that's very true. And um, to be honest, that was one of the main issues that I wanted to avoid the military because it just felt like that... Um, lad culture yeah. <laughs> yeah. and that's what I really experienced at St Andrews was this kind of lad culture and no discipline which is ironic because it's the military but yeah. <laughs> there's like the, the lack of discipline is is you know it's uh surprising and I think that you it when you go into the merchant navy everyone's already signed a contract it's they're getting paid up front and it's a professional industry the nautical college um, really did have to crack down on people. I mean, there were young men, um, 80 of uh, us uh, in one intake and I was one female. I think we started with four females and 80 men and then the other three females dropped out within the first month or two. And things were happening, you know, like drunken people were knocking on our doors at night and, you know, all of that. But the, the college handled it so well that they actually nipped it in the bud completely. Um, and I really like hats off to the college because I really did feel like they had my back and they were very strict with everyone from the from the start to see any trouble you will get dismissed and it I mean a few people were out of the college after a couple of these incidents happened um and you know you don't want to be ratting on people but if it's continuing to happen it is something that you should address and it was handled so well um so it did make me feel quite safe there and out at sea, did you think it was down to the leadership on the ship as to how well or how protected you felt? So I think it is totally down to leadership. I think that it's also cultural as well. So it depends what kind of nationalities you're sailing with and things. And I think that uh, really, I always felt really good on James Fisher Tankers. Um, there was only one time there that there was one crew member causing issues and because it was a chief mate um it was you know there there was no repercussions for him um and I think that's you know I was lucky but I don't think that if anything had happened I would have had a leg to stand on really because I don't think that there would have been a proper complaints procedure in place if I'm being honest so (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's. Thank you for being so honest there, Chloe, and it, and it's good to know this. It really is. On the same token, you would also think that you know the more the women we have out in the merchant navy and the royal navy, the better it will become. But do you think we've got a long way to go with this, or do you think things are improving? No. So I think that it's actually been static since women were first allowed on. So in the merchant navy, women have been allowed on board much, much longer than in the military, which again is why I think there's this lad culture in the military and why I wasn't particularly drawn to it. 
but I think that I could be wrong here, but I think it's since the 70s that um, women were allowed to be on ship in uh, the Royal Navy. And I think that actually it's kind of static. Like I don't, I think there's certain industries where within the merchant navy, such as cruise ships and passenger vessels, where there are more females on board. Yeah. Um, and then there's oil tankers and cargo ships where there are less. And it's something that a lot of the companies are trying to drive, like some kind of campaign. And actually, just when I left uh, cruise ships, I almost got re-recruited, or at least I got approached by some recruiters trying to get me back on the cruise ships because they were recruiting only females. But that, in some ways, also has its repercussions because there's a lot of this mindset that seems to trickle down to the cadets. A lot of young people go to sea. And I think that it's true of young people in general, if not more so in young men, where they can be very impressionable to someone that they respect. So if a captain in their 70s is teaching them, I think there's this culture that is being perpetuated where they might think that, you know, females aren't up to scratch. And so even though they've been at college with other females and, you know, they're their colleagues, they go to sea and then they, they kind of christened into, <laughs> into the sea culture and then they bring it back to the classroom. So it just feels like it'll take time to really obliterate that. And I think that it's being so ingrained in young people that are impressionable, but I don't know how it's going to change or when. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I think that the positive discrimination of bringing women in to try and even out numbers is going to also have difficulties for females because there's oh you only got this job because you are female have it easier so it's it's a really it's complicated on so many levels and I think that it's um the way I see it is that it's going to be static for a number of years more Mm. it will take time hopefully the day will come that will be a bit more equal are you still going to see these days Chloe no, so I am shore-based now. Um, I live on the west coast of Scotland um, and I run an alpaca trekking centre and goat trekking centre with my husband and my daughter. Uh, it, since she was born, I didn't really want to go back to sea. Uh-huh. Um, but I uh, also perform music uh, most weekends now, so it's it would be a bit hard <laughs> to <laughs> go to sea. I, I've got a lot on my plate now, so... <laughs> We can't let the alpaca centre go past us there, though. What, what's, <laughs> what's that about? How many alpacas have you got? So we've got seven boys and three females, and we've got five goats. So they all uh, live <laughs> on the banks of the Clyde <laughs> in Largs, and we do alpaca treks with them uh, and feed sessions and things. Um, but they are really nice animals to be around. Uh, they are very calming and we get a lot of people visiting us um, with special needs or dementia or whatever. And you can just see what a difference it makes to people just visiting. And I think that animal therapy is something that's growing across the UK. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, goats and alpacas without fail bring a smile to people's faces. They do. They're, they're absolutely gorgeous. And goat yoga. Am I right in saying that you do that as well? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm really into yoga and we got our goats last summer and this summer we're essentially wanting to run classes outside on the, it'll be completely weather dependent, but basically um, I use my goats, I I do yoga and the goats climb on you and it's... It's not really, I, I guess you could argue that it deepens the stretch or whatever, but really it's just animal therapy. It just makes you happy because they're climbing on you whilst you're doing something that's relaxing. And, <laughs> and I think there's lots of laughter there. 
<laughs> yeah absolutely so it, it just brings it's just something to do that brings a smile on your face yeah i'm telling Susie about it and yeah. saying that you did goat yoga she thought i was pulling her leg i did oh, i did i did i mean never heard of it that goat yoga was something that i actually did not believe linda for the first time so you, you've had albums out in the past with your music have you anything coming up at the moment chloe have you any music about to be released it's actually been a very short time since I've been performing music uh, since coming shoreside again. So in 2022, October 2022, I released my debut album and that actually won Celtic Music Radio Album of the Year that December. And then last year um, I won two more awards and was nominated for three more awards. So it was quite a big year. And I also played Cambridge Folk Festival, which I think is an amazing you know, artists wait a long time to get there, so it was yes. just a huge honour to to have, have managed to do that in, in the early years. Small voyages that take a night and day Rocking around as young to wait Not noticing the months you'll be It's all coming together and I think this next album that I'm doing and working on now, I'm recording with uh, Tonekeeper Productions in Glasgow and so I'm moving to a kind of electronic soundscaping which will be some kind of juxtaposition to my harp which is acoustic and my voice arrangements and um, that will be released in October 2024, so this year. Um, I'm off to Australia to tour in March, so I was invited wow. to do Melbourne Celtic Festival, and wow. I've managed to pull together um, five more dates over a 10-day tour. So I'll be touring between Melbourne and Sydney in March, and then I'm also going to be touring the UK again in October after doing the summer festivals this year. I will be going to Germany in November and North America on tour in March, April time, 2025. It's kind of spanning out this long plan, <laughs> but it's all kind of coming together at the same time. Um, so I'm really excited about working on these new pieces uh, because I think for music, for me, it's about lending a voice to the modern day seafarer. I'm so inspired by the natural environment as experienced at sea. And I think one of the things uh, that's amazing is this feeling of vulnerability when you're sitting on a, a big, deep <laughs> column of water <laughs> on a ship and you get to see amazing things like whales and dolphins and, and sea life. And then you've got all the sounds of the ship and also the sounds of being at sea. So you've got the wind and the sea and the engine. And I think through music, a lot of my songwriting, it's about the storytelling and experiences that you have at sea but I also blend field recordings in and I think bringing these electronic elements uh, that are being produced into it, it's this kind of interesting juxtaposition between the natural world and the industry, which obviously represents the shipping. Um, so I feel like that kind of comes together in quite an interesting way. Do you think it's it's interesting about where you live, Chloe, as well, and and not being in the city, do you find that really helps your music and the way you develop your music and being out in the country? If you were in a city, do you think you would have the same sort of perspective? It's funny because I think in Scotland, the cities are slightly different than down south. So I think that if I was living in London, I definitely would feel very different about needing to get out and needing to find creativity. But 
I guess the only city that I've lived in other than London is Galway and Edinburgh. And both of those cities were just, it felt like you're right on top of nature in this kind of Edinburgh, you're on this high towering <laughs> kind of hill overlooking all of uh, Scotland, it felt like. And then you also have Galway, which was right on the coast and it felt very wild. But I think that I'd have to live somewhere always that has that kind of exposure to nature. And I think that that's really important. Um, and it's not necessarily city or rural, but it just so happens that I live on the Clyde right now. And it, it is very special. And I've also got this connection with the shipping because there's ships and submarines going out to sea on a daily basis. I did want to just touch on this fetish with all these harps that Chloe has. For me, it's about shoes and handbags, but for you, it's harps. So, uh, And I think you've won that one, actually, Chloe. So I just want to know, when you see a harp, do you literally dream about having it? Yeah, it's quite alarming. So my, my two loves are animals and harps. And so really, I'm kind of on this, this kind of <laughs> spending circle. Where <laughs> I, um, I'm always dreaming about another horse or I'm always dreaming about another harp. And it's the, I think for harps, for me, it's, it's the, the different types of wood, the different levers you can get. Um, the portability and like the packages you can get so you can get ones with mics inside where you can just plug them in on stage <laughs> um, and, uh, there's also uh, you know the string tension as well and there's always new advances and types of uh, traditionally uh, hearts are strung with gut strings and now they're bringing out these really amazing carbon fiber strings which have amazing resonance and obviously they're vegetarian which is great because I love animals so it's <laughs> You know, you're constantly thinking about trying something else. And I think for me, it's quite difficult because the Edinburgh Harp Festival happens every year. All the harp makers come together and you get to try all the new models again. And... <laughs> oh, my goodness. Can you imagine all the handbags coming to one area? I'd love it. <laughs> but I absolutely admire you. I think it's wonderful. to, And it's so interesting to have that choice in instruments. Do you think this is the way forward for lots of instruments, that they're progressing in technology and, and they're getting much more, as you say, acoustically much more interesting? I think probably so. And I think that, um, you know, for the harp, I think there's so it, it lends itself to so much uh, exploration because it really isn't very practical traveling around with these huge harps. And so everyone is always trying to improve the smaller models of their harps or, you know, their big ones, but making them lighter. So there's also ways of having the actual body of the harp made out of, you know, carbon fiber and um, making it very lightweight to move around. I think for other instruments, maybe like guitars and violins, they're already so portable, so there's not yes, really that need true. to explore it the same way. It's always good to change things, isn't it? It's always good to progress. And But I also think as well, do you come across lots of people that are quite purist about the harps? Yes, I think that's very true. And I think that it can be true of trad players and it can also be true of classical players. And, you know, that's what they do. They're harpists. And for me, um, I don't even think of myself as a harpist because I think many of them are purists. And I think that there's also this kind of branch that are very experimental, but at the end of the day, they're instrumentalists. <clears throat> and for me, like it's, I'm not an instrumentalist, I'm a singer songwriter. And it's definitely part of my story. And a means to tell my stories is through this backdrop of harp music, uh, which lends itself really well to 
I mean, it it feels like a column of water when I'm playing it. Like it sounds this this high end on the deep end, um, and it's got that depth of sound. But it it's just so happens that it lends itself to that, and that I happen to play it uh, for my storytelling. Um, whereas I think a lot of people, their aim is to carry on breaking down the boundaries of the harp and really delve into the harp itself as an instrument because that's the story you know yeah. for me my identity is very much seafarer and singer songwriter and I've got quite a, a strong feminist message behind it as well <laughs> so it's you know it's definitely storytelling oh it's lovely and it's so nice when you can create your your own niche and and really enjoy that and really develop your own area and and that's what's so important there's a place for everything and that's key really it's been absolutely brilliant speaking to you today, Chloe Matharu. Really enjoyable, very interesting hearing about the Merchant Navy. Very interesting hearing about the harp. What an interesting life you live, you and your alpacas. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really nice to chat to both of you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's really a total pleasure. And it's so nice um, to be able to talk to somebody like you, Chloe, who's done so many things and experienced so many things. And then you bring it into music. And that's wonderful. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Now, all our women we feature are extraordinary, and Livy is no exception. Livy is fascinated by all things people and planet. She is a linguist and also qualified as a physiotherapist with the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst and a climate entrepreneur. Livy spent 18 months immersed in six different organisations working on climate solutions before joining the Climate Accelerator Carbon 13 in Cambridge, where she co-founded Get Zero, a digital climate education tool for young people. Livy's life mission is to empower individuals and companies to accelerate the transition to net zero and in doing so turn climate anxiety into agency. Livy is now part of Climate Clarity, helping communities and companies evolve to face the climate crisis. Livy, it is wonderful to have you on Women Making Ways today. Welcome indeed. Thanks. I really like that. <laughs> Copy and paste. <laughs> the climate clarity then. Just tell us a little bit about that and, and you being advisor. What does that job involve? Yeah, I think you said earlier, um, I guess, passionate about all things climate education. I'm still on the journey of working out how, when, why, what are the best ways. Um, and probably a bit circumstantial as well. You know, we did get zero in startup world and it's not always plain sailing as in finances and things have to be juggled and that was what it really what it came down to is I really believe in the mission but for me the the education landscape in schools I guess is just going to take a little bit longer kind of need curriculum reform um you're battling against teacher time at the end of the day and that's really hard and it's hard to also be a competitor in inverted commas in that landscape because no one wants to be competing against other you know against NGOs or whatever so the decision was kind of made to pivot more towards how would you facilitate the gap in um, green careers green skills and I don't really like using the word green because every career in the future will have an aspect of green but that's what Joe and Matt are now working towards and then climate clarity we're working more with corporates so 
um, steep learning curve because obviously corporates is a bit broad, but under that it could be finance, construction, or and they all have a different need, different style of facilitation, um, different goals under net zero, obviously all aiming for zero. That's where I'm up to at the moment. We work mainly with corporates, but um, still doing work in communities and geos. I think even just counting up how much carbon you're using as an organisation, that in itself is actually really, really difficult because I know that other people that I work with are doing that and they're trying to kind of take into account all of our travelling, they're trying to take into account absolutely everything from our data centres to Mm. just everything, even how you get to work in the morning, if you're working at home, all of these things. It's really, really hard to actually calculate. Yeah, and I think um, often it's the larger organisations that pass the have the budget to do that, have the sustainability consultants. It's just doing something. It's getting on the ladder. And I came across one the other day called Small 99, and that's specifically for SMEs and there's business net areas. So there is always a tool out there, but I really appreciate that it's a bit of a, a minefield of, of who and who do I trust and what name and why. But the best thing you can do is to do something and then you figure it out on the way. Maybe that's more of a a startup entrepreneurial mindset of go and then <laughs> figure it out on the way. But doing nothing is really just not an option anymore. So, <laughs> no. It's interesting you say, who do you trust? And of course, along any line of uh, change or getting a message across, you're always going to have naysayers. And I'm interested in what you just said then about who do you trust? How, I mean, what are the challenges like in your job in the area that you work in? Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. I think a lot of people, I think, have an inflated idea that loads of people are just out there to make money and there's loads of greenwashing. It's just not been my experience at all. The reason I'm still here and will do this for the rest of my life is because I've come across that many decent people working in this space. We will get there, and unfortunately, I've had to dig deep to find those people or deeper you know through accelerators or reading positive news when actually you just get a lot of negative media won't name any (laughs) certain papers so I think generally you find people and you know you can build those trusted relationships just like you would with friendships I think most people are out there to do a good thing but at the same time I do appreciate that for someone that is new to this space it could feel and probably does feel overwhelming. I think we all just have to go with our gut, keep going, figure it out on the way, as I said before. Mm. How, how did you get into this to begin with? What made you passionate <laughs> about the effect of climate change? I know that we are all to an extent, but what made you want to go into this, Livy? Yeah, maybe this story will make other people think, oh, why not? Because there was no reason why I should be in this space. Sure, I've been aware of climate since I was about 11. I was probably ahead of the curve in that sense. I don't know why I was conscious of it at such an early age, because it's nothing to do with, I don't know, I don't remember an incident. But it wasn't until I was 30, and I I remember this moment specifically. Bearing in mind I was a, a physio and had a path trying to go, you know, to Sandhurst and that route. And I sat at the kitchen table, I think it was just the start of lockdown, and I just, my phone was there, and I rang my dad and was like, would you let me move in with you for six months for me to study the food supply chain? (laughs) Um, And no questions asked. He's like, you know, the most horizontal man on the planet. (laughs) Yeah. And so I came home and I just started riding around on my bike to farms 
and asking the questions. I mean, literally, like, what is a you? Do you know about oat milk to dairy farmers on their lunch break? I mean, it was bizarre. You know, when you're like, I just need to do something and I don't know where to start, so I'll just start with questions. And then that led to those, you know, you said six businesses, so I went on to um, a regenerative farm and to um, a hydroponics farm to kind of an e-commerce platform, just asking questions because I thought food was the best place to start because everybody eats. And then, if I'm honest, I came out of food because I felt like it was so emotional and often divisive and I didn't really have the answers. It's really complicated food and I even have a difficult relationship with, I guess, my mum around food and I'm a vegetarian. I don't want to tell people to be a vegetarian. I don't want to tell a dairy farmer to shut down. He's ridiculous. What would he do the next day? So I just wanted to step back and almost find tools that facilitated people to think on their own and encourage it and motivate them rather than bulldoze in with answers where Mm. someone always loses out. So quite a strange journey into the space. That's really um... interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But I I like the way, and we've been reading, obviously, and researching all of what you have done. So you are a linguist and you studied French and you studied Chinese. Wow. And then the second part is that you were in the reserves for the military where you trained as a physiotherapist. Now, you see, this was after after university so you've gone from university and then you would try the reserve so what what gave you that sort of push or don't tell me it's a boy I know it gets no it gets weirder <laughs> no unfortunately it wasn't a boy in fact that's quite um, no so so at 21 I wanted to get join the army and I failed I think I failed probably on all sorts of grounds medical too and you have to wait until certain amount of time passes before you try again. I let that go, but I had a massive chip on my shoulder about it. You know when someone just tells you you can't do something and you sort of think, I know I can't do it now and I'm very embarrassed, but I think this is learnable. Weirdly, I was working in Sierra Leone for a charity when Ebola happened, and all of a sudden we were sort of all useless. If you weren't a medic and you weren't in the army, we didn't really have a role Um, you're sort of redeploying all these educators and I remember thinking I don't have a skill and seeing somebody have a skill was just so necessary and also the army were there so it all just sort of came back around in a loop so then I went back and went back to university for three years and retrained as a physio and was in the reserves and went through selection for Santos and then would you believe um, I got through and then I found out that they basically didn't have any more room for physios at this time and then you go onto a wait list but you don't know how long the wait list is going to be could be months could be years and it was very much a decisive moment in time of well there's this niggly thing of climate in the background that's always been there and I'm now 30 would going into the army full time what if I want chill I don't know there was a lot of mm. there was a, I suppose a big decision but I'm, I'm quite good at big decisions not so good at little ones um <laughs> so that's where it then sort of I chose one path and I I guess I learned from from the reserves and going down that route that I did prove a point in that it was really hard to learn the sh- how to do command tasks and all the things that I found terrifying I didn't have political knowledge and history knowledge like lots of the people or family that was in that area but it is all learnable if you want something and I I guess take that part of it forward. (laughs) I I think it's incredible I always think you only learn things from mistakes and also it strikes me that what you're doing now 
is pretty far removed from what you would have been in that sliding doors moment if you hadn't chosen to diversify and go off and do something else. Looking after the climate is, I think, a polar opposite in some respects to, to being in the army. Would you believe, because I couldn't believe actually, so we deliver what's called the Climate Fresk, uh, which is a 42-card game that explains the whole science of climate picture and then you do an emotions round and then you do an action round and on these cards it links everything together and one of those cards is armed conflict one of those cards is climate refugees so you actually see the whole picture so I worked in I guess you could call it international development it is all connected and I suppose the theme is like social justice and fairness across the world I think we forget that with climate it's not green it's not a group of activists it's it is the whole picture, it all interdependent. Climate can be the vehicle that brings us all together and brings people out of poverty. For example, if we hurdled fossil fuels and just were able to level renewable energy in the continent of Africa and out of poverty at the same time through energy. I mean, that's incredible. You mentioned earlier, Livy, about school curriculum and reforming it. And I thought that was quite interesting because Linda and I have always thought that you know that we should be have some sort of reforming of the curriculum when it comes to gender and roles for both male and female. So I'm I'm interested in, on your sort of thoughts about reforming the curriculum, the school curriculum for uh, sustainability and climate change. So there are waves happening. I think it just needs to happen faster. And the teachers aren't the enemies here. I've got lots of friends with teachers and where on earth do you fit this on and how do they upskill in it that's a whole new discipline but I think there are ways around that they're bringing out a climate award that will be kind of uh, Mm. equivalent to Duke of Edinburgh that's exciting you know giving it recognition and reward for getting involved in something climate related I think that it can be really linked to careers because as I said every career is going to be a green career what happens when all the boiler installers are retiring the next five years who's going to do the retrofitting all those jobs but it's just awareness about them these are really skilled jobs that are exciting well paid that's what Get Zero is now focusing on how to promote that so better pay would be a starting point too (laughs) but it just I guess you know you've got academies you've got state schools you've got private schools until there is more time and more value put on climate education teachers aren't going to be able to get behind it Mm. and the problem is students are crying out for this not just well from an emotional perspective you see a bit more black and white, maybe see it a bit more like I did when I was 11. we like, I'm pretty sure this isn't a great direction. And you, you, you can blame corporates and politicians, but what can I do? Mm. What can I do right now? Yeah. And actually, there's loads of things they can do. One of them being influence their parents. But how do you facilitate the dialogue for them to have something tangible that they go home to their parents and talk about? Like, you, Dad, have you thought about an EV and actually done the metrics on it and when to charge the EV? Like, really key conversations that it would land better coming from your child. Pester power, they call it. Pester um, power. Then it would, you know, reading in the daily... And I know that because my dad's... The, I pestered him for years and he's, like, up there with the eco-warriors now and he tried to do that in his business, so... Yeah, there's evidence behind this pester power thing that's not being leveraged as much as I'd like it to. Well, I think that's yeah, fantastic. That's good. And I'm really, really interested in this Duke of Edinburgh level mm. idea about sustainability. That's a great idea. Mm. I know, it's like the new version, isn't it? There's transition groups around and one of our transition groups in Wilmslow does um, market gardens. And there's a patch that the lady there that looks after Alfie was showing me where she's like, oh, there's a Duke of Edinburgh pupil that's grown that. 
and, you know, comes back and forth, sees the fruits of his loom. And I just thought, that is so good. How often do you get a tangible, not just knowledge about planting, and you've learnt off someone two generations above you, but just to have an outcome like that for the rest of your life of how to plant this, what's in season. I think that makes me uh, think of actually, it makes me laugh actually, because when I used to pack my children off to DFE, I used to pack them big rucksacks and they'd be going off on the Peak District. Now I can foresee the new awards where they're off visiting gardens afar. So they'll visit one garden in one village. And, and why not? This is all about community, isn't it? All how a community runs a garden, how they run a landscape. That would be fascinating. Yeah, and I think the, the bit that's also a great opportunity is we're going to lose that skill base in grandparents. And the, the one in between, they're busy working, but there's all those people are retiring with that wealth of knowledge where does that go Mm. and just having a platform like Duke of Edinburgh to you know be the place for that dialogue Mm. I think would be is really exciting and I think the positive feedback loop as well of volunteering from an early age I think for me it was always a chore of oh it's something I'm forced to do now doing volunteering it's like oh there is this innate feeling of good because I'm not being paid for it, and the type of people I meet. Influences. Do you find that you've been influenced or you've had a great mentor in your journey so far that's really helped you along the way? I think mentors are everything, Mm. and I owe where I am to mentors. This is me reaching out to people on LinkedIn being like, help, I just need a sounding board. Mm. And I remember on that year of discovery... I was so surprised how many people gave up their time to just speak to me for no reason other than sharing knowledge and talking. And so I had one's friends who I really respected, one actually from the military, Hamish, just a really level-headed guy, then someone super passionate about food, Harold, then Zan, who's also went through the Cambridge Accelerator, um, just sky's the limit in terms of how to grow and keep going. Um, people in an industry that I didn't knew nothing about, just giving their experience and wealth of knowledge. Like a behavioural scientist, Rachel, who, again, didn't know anything about the area and just have been now become pretty good friends with. Mm. So it doesn't often land when it comes from your parents so much. Yeah. They, I guess, use them for different reasons. But having somebody to be accountable to, it's kind of vital. I would actually say that's the one reason I'm still on a sort of mad journey, is just having people along the way. But it's also, it works both ways. And I'm sure you've done that for for people that have asked you, because you are in a, in a position of great knowledge now, Livy. You know, you, you've been through and you've done quite a lot. And in my mind, and you've reached a certain age, which I still think is very young, uh, you have done a lot. You've achieved so much. Yeah, no one's asked me yet. <laughs> um, I'd say, like, if they did, I think I'd be a good cheerleader, because I maybe it's a blessing and a curse. I think I'm... I'm fearless because the stakes of what we have to lose are so high. So in that respect, I just do say yes to everything and keep going. And I think I've changed career and direction so many times that at the time I thought this doesn't make sense and it's really hard to know if I should. Then when you look back, you do over time start to piece the gaps together of, okay, I had no idea that would come in handy and only in hindsight could I know that. The fear of not going with your gut, to me, is always going to be more terrifying than going down the route of, of the unknown. I think you just have to embrace the unknown 
and see that that's kind of where beauty lies, creativity, all of those things that, mm. um, yeah. that I guess I've enjoyed the most. Yeah. Yeah. In your downtime, you can be found um, running up mountains in the Lake District <laughs> or, uh, or cycling on your bike. Is that a passion that you've had since you were a kid? I've always run. Um, it's my version of meditation. It's my version of release. Yeah, it's, I guess, how I, I've always coped. It's how I think. And then I dabbled on the bike in lockdown. And then, yeah, the Lake District is the most incredible place in the world to cycle. And so then it turned into a triathlons for a while. And then it was so time-consuming. Fortunately, I was, you know, single and had no children because I don't know how you do it otherwise. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's just my... Um, happy place you know how you have something running through your veins and you just have to be near it that's how I feel mm. about well I'll get told off for calling the mountains and the lakes <laughs> fells yeah <laughs> high objects it's very true they do get a bit picky about those don't they yes very picky <laughs> yeah. about their, their, their hills but and you their go out fells. running around the streets as well when you're at home yeah no I do that too I like to go fast but I've been going slow for too long on mountains, so I'm trying to get faster again. Um, yeah, and also I went, I've always played hockey and I went back to hockey recently. And you know that swallowing your pride moment where you're just like, I've got worse and I'm never going to be as good as I was. So I've, I've just packed it in. Yeah. I'm sure you'll find <laughs> so other <goodbye>. things. <laughs> yeah. well, if you're not enjoying it anymore, yeah. there's no point in doing it. Absolutely. Libby, just one more thing, looking back at your younger self and looking at yourself now in your perspective, if you were talking to the younger generation, say we could reform the curriculum, maybe you were in a class now where the, the reform is starting to happen, what would you say to those pupils, men and women, You know, what would you give them, what would be your life lesson? I'd kind of say just experiment because none of us have the answers and that's the beautiful thing about this time is we're going to look back and say I was around at that period where we were trying to find the answers and that's that's really exciting and I think often young people think oh it's the grown-ups that know well actually they really don't I mean I worked with like a 16 year old called Rosie for the last year and a half as my kind of soundboard Mm. and she's now leading the sustainability club at school she asks for ideas but actually she doesn't need my ideas it's just figuring it out herself and those skills that she picks up will be great to talk about in any circumstance and she can have an influence on her parents get involved in local politics at a younger age I wish I'd done that because now I've come full circle been in every area kind of NGOs the NHS the army corporates now I'm like yeah it's really important to vote isn't it and actually not disengage from politics, because if we do that and we just say it's all a bit crap, like the narrative is at the moment, we're just giving in. And that's the area that I'm now interested in, not going to Westminster, God help me, um, <laughs> just local politics. Like yeah. how do things work in your local community where you can actually make a difference, which just never really occurred to me. Maybe some people have conversations around the dinner table, but I didn't. But um, Yeah, valid yeah, points. A, yeah. yeah, the politics yeah, project is a little thing for schools that um, helps with that. Um, I only found out about them recently, but that's what they're trying to do, is push that more into the curriculum, talking to MPs. Mm. So, yeah, there's loads of stuff out there good happening. I think that's fantastic. And well said, Livy, well said. Some great things <laughs> you've talked about today. Thank you so much indeed for coming on to Win Making Ways today. We've so enjoyed it. 
Yeah. Um, I, we can't tell you how much we've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's no been worries. great. I enjoyed it. And yeah, really refreshing ideas, actually. And I, I, I love some of the things that you were saying, going around speaking to farmers and asking questions <laughs> and things. Yeah, me too. If, if you encourage all of the school kids to do that, they'll be swamped around the farms, all yeah. the farms. <laughs> I know, curiosity is key. Yeah. It is. That's all we have time for today on Women Making Waves. Our thanks to our guests, Chloe Matharu and Olivia Partington. Now, we're always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives. So please do contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on X and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. <laughs>